Once, <clears throat> once upon a time, in time immemorial, the Bodhisattva was born uh, as a quail. And he had his own country, his own ancestral lands. And um, he knew every nook and cranny of it, every tree, every boulder, every log, uh, every rock, every cave, every shadow and every light. He was quite at home in his own domain, familiar, safe. It was a sanctuary. But one day, curiosity got the better of him, and he, he flew out of his ancestral land into unknown territory, briars and dark forests and swamps. And, and before he knew it, these talons grabbed him, and it was a, it was a falcon. It was a, the Buddha's evil cousin in an earlier life. And the falcon took him up to some cliff and was about to eat him. And uh, our little quail said, you know, trying to keep his equanimity, you know, <laughs> if I had been in my own ancestral land, you would never have been able to catch me. And he said it just in the right way to trigger the falcon's conceit. Oh, Yeah. I could catch you anywhere, at any time. Okay, said the quail, take me back to my ancestral land. Drop me anywhere you like. I won't move a millimeter. And then go up and then catch me again. So the falcon took him back to his the land of his uh, ancestry, dropped him off, you know, in some what looked like clear open field, easy target, bullseye target. And the falcon flew up to the clouds and then you know, aimed his uh, focused telescopic eyes on his target and just went zipping down like a, like a jet, wishing right down, confident and knowing you know, that he would catch his prey. And you know, at the last minute, his talons go out to grab our bodhisattva little quail. And almost like it was an afterthought, just the slightest little shift and move, you know, as if he was just stepping into his shadow, because he knew exactly where he was, just backed up, and it was just a little cave, natural little curvature in the land, and the falcon just crashed into a pile of feathers and bones. <laughs> and the quail came out, you know, put his foot top of, the, of his conquered enemy, crossed his arms, his feathers rather, and said, <laughs> I've conquered my enemy with healthy pride. And there's a difference between conceit and healthy pride, which I'll try to remember to talk about. I've conquered my enemy. I'm back in my ancestral lands. There never be a need for me to leave again. I have everything I need here. And it's my sanctuary. The, the, uh, this particular Jataka tale, the Buddha then made a comment on. He said, um, uh, he elaborated on, on that in the teaching of uh, why need we go outside our own domain to know the truth, to feel unconditional love, compassion, joy, equanimity, to see things as they are, you know, to be realized. Why look out, and very specifically, why look outside the body and senses? Why look outside feeling tone, which happens every, every moment and is a doorway either to clinging or to liberation, if we're aware? Why look outside the heart, chitta, the heart and mind? You know, all the images, all the emotions, all the memories and thoughts, everything is there. Why look outside phenomena, you know, the, the fields of experience, sights, sounds, smell, taste, body sense, uh, you know, everything else, in other words. These are the four foundations of mindfulness. 
within which everything we need to discover, everything that's within comes forth. The Brahma Viharas, the Vipassana mindfulness, all the stepping stones to healing, wholeness, liberation. It's an, another two companions to keep aware of. They're inside. <laughs> the quail and the falcon also live in our heart, you know. The ten- temptation to go outside, to get lost in concepts, for example. A good friend of mine from many years ago, the West African uh, indigenous native from the Dakara tribe, and uh, I, I was at a, a gathering, a men's gathering, around 1990. He was one of the guide, leaders and guides there. And he had a unique story. At a young age, three or so, he, he, was, he was taken by um, uh, Westerners, I think French, and then educated in, in Western schools, Catholic schools, and then the Sorbonne, Oxford, you know, full Western education. But all along the way, you know, he had this longing to know his roots. And when he finished his education, he went back to the, his tribal home in Burkina Faso to, um, to the Dakara tribe elders and said, I want to know who I am. I want to know where I came from. And the elders accepted him back into the tribe and uh, for, for a training period. Uh, and he, he t- two things of the many things he taught that I want to share. One was in the evening, in the beginning, he, he would turn up when he sat around, sat around with the elders you know, in their mud huts or outside, put more wood on the fire or turn up the lanterns. And about the third or fourth night he went to do that. One of the elders said, well, you know, Maladoma, why are you why are you turning up the light? And he said, so, so we can see better. And the elder said, you can't see better if you turn up the light. It's like in the daytime. You don't see what's true in the daytime. You just see what you want to see. He said, we, and they said, you have to dim the lights if you really want to see clearly. Meaning, you know, we have to dim our conceptual lights, our striving to see, to rationalize, to to analyze, uh, in, in order to drop into this precognitive, pre-verbal, pre-thought awareness. So that was one really powerful teaching, and you know, one in which our our bodhisattva quail had forgotten for a while. This, Curiosity led him into this conceptualization and he was drawn by his uh, uh, attachments, his, his, uh, his um, greed, basically. His, his greed to leave his own domain and to look uh, outside of himself. So in the same way these elders were saying, if you want to, really want to know who you are, what your roots are, you know, first of all, dim your... Western mind, your Western educated mind, so you, you can see again with your indigenous heart. And this is true for all of us, because even though we may be a few generations away, we all have an indigenous background. We all come from indigenous ancestry. And in the scale of time, in the scale of, of, uh, of human development, it, it's really only a few days or a few weeks ago that we lost that capacity to see and sense with our body, our senses, our intuition. So it's not so far off. And, and the second powerful teaching was about emotion. You know, we've been cultivating these, these Brahma-viharas, which we could call pure emotion, the purest emotions, or spiritual emotions, elevated emotions, whatever you like. And I've said a couple of things about them. I said they're really one mind. They're really four facets of the same mind. Or, you know, like four fragrances of of the same um, heart, nature. And uh, I've also said that all, all emotions 
um, evolve into these four. When we work carefully, skillfully, mindfully, with any emotion, the difficult emotions, you know, in particular, they all evolve. And the skillful emotions, of course, are all one facet or another of connection, you know, friendliness, kindness, are all a, you know, a, a child are related to care, compassion, sensitivity, response to alleviate suffering. You know, there are many states that are that are related to compassion and and empathetic or enduring joy, appreciation, gratitude, many states related to that. Uh, and likewise, equanimity, balance of mind, equipoise, evenness, seeing things with impartiality, not being uh, pulled or pushed by temptation or intimidation, pleasure or pain. Um, so if we if we if we abide long enough in any one of these these states, we see that both the near and far enemies, you know, dissolve or evolve into this abiding of uh, of the Brahma Viharas. So working with any emotion, pleasant or unpleasant, you know, um, likable or dislikable. Uh, easy or difficult is really an important part of our practice. So the other story uh, Maladoma told was of in this village as he got to know his ancestry and his roots. You know, he, he realized that people related to emotions very differently than in France and and England and um, and uh, uh, New England of America, all places where he was educated. Uh, in which the senses of uh, individualism and identification of you know emotions are mine. And we personalize emotions. We identify. We attach with them. You know, whereas in 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 most indigenous cultures, and of course in the Buddhist teachings, emotions are impersonal and impermanent. And so the way that emotions would be worked with in a pure way in the in the Dakara village was every once in a while a man or a woman or a child or an elder would come out into the village square or circle. I don't know if it was a square or a circle. You know, I don't know if uh, Great Joy of the Ox had been there to change things around or not. But the, the person would come out and they'd act out an emotion in some way with antics, you know, physical movement uh, or contortions or voice, yelling, shouting, speaking, being silent, dancing. In some way, they would just uh, evoke and manifest uh, some powerful emotion. And it was a call for all the villagers to come out and to co-feel or co-experience that emotion. And the result was a, a higher knowing for all of them, an evolvement of the village, you know, of the village emotion and of everyone who shared in that emotion. Like a cleansing or a further understanding or a healing, just some way in which everyone benefited. And it was no one person's emotion. You know, and the way we often teach about understanding emotions is like, you know, sometimes you have an emotion and Michelle and I might say, you know, it's just as well if you if you imagine that the emotion you're experiencing is the person behind you or in front of you. You know, because that's how impersonal it is. When we're not identified with it, if we really understand, conditions come together. There's some trigger. We have a memory. You know, and the memory of uh, is of, of some um, incident that happened, happy or unhappy that that occurred. And then that might trigger sensations in the body. And those sensations in the body might trigger other uh, emotions and then thoughts. And all of a sudden we're kind of locked and lost in this story and quite identified with it. Uh, and, you know, and, and suffer for it because there's attachment or there's aversion or there's confusion or there's the wanting to fix it, change it, get rid of it, especially if it's a difficult emotion 
or the wanting to cling to it, hold on to it, claim it, own it, if it's a pleasant emotion. Either way, it's not seen pure emotion. If and when we see pure emotion, it's just like seeing a thought. A thought is just like uh, a bubble on the surface of the water, an energy impulse that also occurs because of conditions. Some, Most of the triggers for our thoughts are sense input. Something we see, something we hear, something we smell or taste, some sensation we feel in the body triggers a memory or an association or an image. And then we're lost in what the Buddha called papancha mind. Uh, so you've heard us use the, the English translations, mental proliferation, embellishment, fabrication, just the mind going off in narrative or story. And it's the nature of papancha mind to identify whatever thoughts or cluster of thoughts, emotion or cluster or emotion are happening, we take them as self. And we're, at, and we're unable, we don't have the space to see that there's so that there is space, that there's so much space between every thought and every emotion. They're just happening so fast. And our discursive mind is sewing them together with our attachment, whatever form the attachment takes. Striving to understand, lost in the story, aversion for what's happening. All, those are all a kind of stickiness. They're all one form or another of attachment. And they, and they make it seem solid. And it's where we hang our sense of self and security and, and sense of being. Without it, with which we feel vulnerable, kind of lost or, you know, uh, fragile, subject to maybe dissolution. Because if those aren't me or mine, what is? You know, and that's why at times most of you, you know, have, have felt the kind of as practice gets more subtle and refined, there's moments where you just feel everything fall away. And there's a fear there. There's a sense of insecurity. There's a sense of, of being annihilated. In, in, in our lineage, we call it a healthy fear, you know, because it's, it's not born of aversion. It's part of insight. And if, and if you have good guidance, you, you know, we're taught how to just feel the fear and let that insight continue. Because eventually we realize that nothing is being annihilated. Or as I said the other day, the only thing that's annihilated is, is greed, hatred, delusion, our hindrances, our fetters. You know, those very things that when we identify with them, we suffer or we suffocate or we feel burdened and weighted. So to, to take the time and find ways and, you know, Angles of a flower, as Michelle talked about, you know, to be able to to, to see really clearly um, just a moment of experience as it is, so that suddenly maybe the e- emotion separates from the narrative, the story that locks us in. In a long retreat with Upandita once, and a month or so into it, you know, I had one of those triggers, and it was a memory, friends. Um, colleagues were from whom I felt um, diminished and betrayed and insulted and um, made to feel inferior and and the, the story just kept you know roiling around and it was really disturbing and distracting. I try to come back to my anchor body and and knowing you know mostly my anchor was just feeling the body. Uh, which just felt like this humming vibration, and then the knowing of that. So I'd come back to humming and knowing, humming and knowing, and then lost in the story. Ninety percent of the time, lost in the story. You know, so like nine time, nine moments out of a hundred, I, I'm back. And uh, but after a while, I'm just frustrated. I'm thinking, I'm not going anywhere. This is, it's all mistakes. It's all failures. You know, I, I can't do it. And I went to um, I went to Pandita, you know, for and tried to clearly say, Saida, you know, I can describe to you what's happening. I can describe 
the body sensations and the knowing of them. But that they only happen every, every few moments. I just get these glimpses of the reality of mind and body. And then I, I get lost in, in this story. And he was never interested in the content of the story. And the content of the story never really matters. Because the deeper or the stronger the emotion, the more likely it's a very old emotion, very old trauma, what we call the karmic knot, some old trauma that will find any story to surface. So even if we unravel the the current story that's up and try to figure out why we feel hurt, lost, betrayed, um, angry, uh, grief, and so forth, there'll just be another story later on. And and that same old grief, um, betrayal, anger will come up again. Why? Because most of these deeper karmic knots or traumas uh, happened, uh, as I think we might have mentioned already, uh, at a time in our life before we could conceptualize. They they were imprints, precognitive imprints. We don't start being cognitive you know, at the very earliest, 16, 18, 19 months old, a huge amount of our life and personality is formed pre-verbally, pre-cognitively. All, all the times our parents were present or absent, manipulative, manipulatively loving or unconditionally loving. You know, we don't know why they disappeared. We just They went outside and to us the universe disappeared. Or, you know, whatever commotion was going on with siblings and parents and family and all those things, we are so sensitive and we take it in. And most parents or caretakers have no idea that how much, how, how bright we are as these young, uh, absorbent uh, children, you know, toddlers, babies. We're just taking all of it in. And so... Those pre-verbal emotions are the same ones that surface later. And, you know, as we start to cognate, we'll again feel intruded, manipulated, absent love, um, intrusive, uh, abandoned or something. But it'll be in school by a friend or a teacher or a, a, a neighborhood incident. And so that... What starts is what we could just call stacking or layering. Just another layer of that same pre-verbal emotion. So imagine all the hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of layers in our lifetime. We can't go through and unravel all those stories, all that proliferation, all that papancha. Sometimes it, it helps a bit and some stories to help unravel just to get to being able to learn how to feel a feeling free of the story. But in, when we do a practice like this, with this depth of you know, pre-verbal tools, the Brahma Viharas and mindfulness, we're going to the very oldest pains existent in our, in our childhood, in this lifetime, or in our ancestral lineage. Or if you have feelings or understandings about karma, you know, our, our karmic lineage. So karmic lineage, our genetic lineage, our early life, we come in with all these deep feelings, some of joy that have been locked away, some of pain that have been locked away. Just old, that's why we call them karmic knots. They're not all necessarily painful. You know, a lot of them are. In fact, probably most of them, because to lock away, even lock away joy is painful, isn't it? You know, when we shut down our enthusiasm, our childhood oneness with the world, you know, when we forget that sort of um, I'm 11, I'm 11 experience of, of, of joyous being, uh, that's painful until we find, you know, a path to, un- to unravel, understand it. And, and that's, that's the key. Key is understanding. The key to all this is, is intuitive understanding and why we, we enter into this 
and grow more deeply this noble silence and this sanctuary of external and then internal safety. So I was doing this practice with Upandita, and that story was roiling around. And I told Saidal, you know, I just keep having the same, same scenario, story, and these feelings of betrayal, of fear and anger and so forth, this kind of cluster ball. And uh, as I said, you know, he knew that the story wasn't necessarily important, at least at that time. And he just said, well, first the thing, the first thing he said was such a relief. He said, you know, side by side with the story-making mind, the discursive mind, the analyzing mind, the monkey mind, the busy mind, whatever you want to call it, side by side with that, when we do practice, is the developing samadhi, the developing concentration, stillness. Even those three moments out of ten, you know, or three moments out of a hundred even, are having a more profound effect on developing um, the the concentration and insight awareness, or metta, in the Brahma-viharas, than, than a thousand moments being busy in the story. Remember I, I gave that verse from Bada uh, Kundalakesa, where, where the Buddha said, better than um, uh, a thousand verses of nothing particularly important is one verse, hearing of which you're liberated. And, and, and she was liberated, you know. It's like that. It's just, if we can trust the, the power of, the, of these single moments of pure metta or the other Brahma-viharas, or single moment of awareness of just things as they are. And that's how, and that's what happened. So I went back to practice, relieved to know that, that, that there was still progress happening, that my, that the stillness was increasing in spite of seem, seemingly being lost in the story. And with that bit of relaxation, you know, we wake up, rest. I just got easier about it. I just got a little lighter. The story seemed a little less dominating and intense. And not long after that, but just within a few days of that teaching, Side by side with the busy mind is the developing stillness and insight. All of a sudden, the, one of those emotions jumped out of the story. And I just saw the pure emotion. I don't remember which was first, but eventually they all jumped out of the story. And it was just pure fear or pure anger, pure feelings of shame or being shamed, pure feelings of grief betrayal, eventually all the, all those emotions came up and they had nothing to do with the story. I could feel that they were deeper. They had more to do with something in the body, sensations in the body uh, and, the, and the sort of clouded cluster and density of those emotions that kept me identified and locked in the story. It's like lightened up, dispersed. And, and it became, you know, what we often just say, just fear. Sometimes the label, just fear, just grief, just shame, helps us to see and feel it. And so a great deal of healing happened, you know. I was, that story never again dominated. You know, it's, it's, it's not to say that I don't get triggered anymore by the, the particular incident. Heavy things that have happened to us, you know, put us in a hurt locker. A, a karmic knot, um, a painful place, and they can be re-triggered. But each time we see them as they are, there's a lightning. There's a space that grows. You know, the space is, is the timeless moment of, of the present. That, that, that was Upandita's first instruction to me. Like, as a monk, 30-some years ago, he said, your only task here is to be in the present moment. I'll take care of everything else. You know, and he just said it. It was just like a teaching and a transmission and a, 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 a fatherly or parental sense of love and care and compassion. It just it brought up a tremendous amount of, of faith and trust 
in this practice and his guidance. It really did help me. And, and it was true. He, he took care of everything else. You know, the monastery fed us and we were provided with all you know our requisites, the uh, medicines and foods and the you know toothpaste and toothbrush soaps, everything that you need, both as a lay practitioner or as a nun or a monk in a monastery. Everything's provided, and there's nothing to do. You know, in, in those days, it, was, it, it took a week to arrange a phone call from Burma to America, so mostly we did postcards, you know, to family once a week or once a month, and no internet, no distraction, very quiet, protected environment, very easy to go, you know, to go in in that way. Our only task is to be in, in the present moment, and of course that's easy to say and, and difficult to do, but it's as simple as it sounds. And that's why we emphasize in these practices over and over again the sense of abiding, you know, just being the field of metta, being the field of awareness. Because eventually, you know, we see that there's nothing to do. And it's just not metaphoric, you know, when I say we're here to learn to do nothing with full commitment. Because what we're doing is by our intention, by the purity of our intention, we're it's like we're hoisting our sails of our canoes and just waiting for the Dhamma winds to come and blow to fill our sails and carry us where we need to be carried. And, and that's when we begin to discover you know, what we call the Dhamma intelligence and, and Brahma Vihara intelligence. Just to clarify, you know, by intelligence we mean the the way things are, the, the Dhamma means natural law, the way of the universe, you know, the truth of things, universal truth, liberating truth. And likewise, we've been saying like metta intelligence, and by that we mean just the natural ecology or the natural law. It's metta that loves, it's compassion that cares, and mudita that feels joy and appreciation. Upeka that balances. And the idea there is just, you know, to help remove that sense of identification, of self-referencing experience, identifying with experience, understanding that all dhammas, all phenomena, all things are anatta. They, there's, there's no person doing anything. And every time we, there's a sense of a person doing something is when we feel striving and struggling and burdened. And whenever we let go of that sense of a person or separate um, intrinsic sense of an ego self doing something, when we don't hold on to that, we feel these natural laws working. And that's why in these last days, you know, we feel carried by the current of the Dharma. We feel the practice doing itself quite naturally. Why it's called natural law, or, or why we give it that term sometimes, Dhamma intelligence or Brahma Vihara intelligence, different than the intellect of the discursive mind. It's a deeper kind of knowing, and one that we already have and that we're accessing the deepest kind of knowing that sees the as-it-is as nature of things. So we've spoken a bit about <clears throat> we wake up, meaning uh, different things, meaning rest, true rest, genuine or authentic relaxation, not just the kind of rest or relaxation from being tired, or from the, the you know the collected toxins we collect mentally and physically in our, in our daily life, it's a more it's, a, it's the most profound kind of rest. In fact, we wake is a synonym for realization, liberation, enlightenment, nibbana. 
which we could say is, is ultimate rest, ultimate relaxation. It also means seclusion. So we all subscribed to a culture of non-harming. We all subscribe to noble silence. We've all been practicing um, deepening degrees of concentration, samadhi, which means stillness or body-mind unification. Or quite literally, samadhi means perfectly put together. That is the heart, mind, where all the scattered, fragmented, shattered parts of ourselves suddenly feel cohered, like a pond where all the water trickles down and fills up that one smooth, clear, deep pond. (coughs) And (coughs) in seclusion, you could say is of two kinds, bodily seclusion, mental seclusion. The bodily seclusion is where instead of being pulled out by the senses. We've been learning to rest in the senses. We've been learning the we wake up of the senses. Why we say receptive awareness or affection awareness. We've been letting <clears throat> light come into our body, sound come into our body and intuitive knowing, scent, taste and body sense come into our intuitive knowing. Normally, the, in our daily lives, we, we go out into the, um, uh, the conceptualization of the objects that we see. We objectify experience into the, the named sites, building, person, car, person, <clears throat> and then all the association, all the triggered memories about that or into naming the sounds, identifying, associating, proliferating the papancha mind around the sounds, and likewise with all the senses. Here we're learning to rest in the senses and really know what the, the field, the sense field, or sphere of, of light and shadow, color, color and form really are. That the eye really does see immediately just the palette of colors. And the ear really does, in the very immediate moment, uh, no sound vibrations. And likewise with all the other senses. Then with the untrained mind, the conceptual mind engages and starts naming and labeling, associating and thinking and embellishing and proliferating, liking and disliking, and the attachments and the aversions and the confusions. So, So... we're learning about this tremendous space of the present moment. Upandita's first instruction to me, your only task is to be in the present moment. Everything else will be taken care of. And that just helps us start to get a glimpse. Some, every once in a while, we are just being seen, not doing seen and working out associations and proliferating what we see, but just being seen, being the hearing, being the sensing, smell, taste, body sense, and being the pure emotion. Seeing that emotion is just emotion. Some are happy, some are unhappy. But there's still just emotion. And if we see as it is, we're not going to attach, cling to the happy. We're not going to feel averse of, or fear they am happy. In fact, we learn that to a degree, our conditioning causes us to often feel or regard emotions as threats. Instead, we can see their transcendent function. As Maladoma's indigenous culture taught, and as the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung taught, that transcendent function of emotion where when we really know emotion, there evolves a higher knowing, a deeper understanding. And we see the emotion as just momentary. And they can happen so fast that it, it seems solid. This one time when I was waiting for a, 
a visa to get back into Burma. I was at um, uh, Wat Swan Mok, a monastery in um, in Thailand, in the south of Thailand, and I had a cottage out in the forest. And every morning, uh, get up quite early, just before the sun came up, and join with the other uh, ordained sangha, and and we go on pindapat with our bowls, you know, to allow the, the villagers to gain uh, the power of goodness by offering food, you know, what they call punya, the gathering of merit, accumulation of skillful states inside. A very hum, humble, solemn event, you know. You, you don't look into the eyes, you just hold out your bowl, bowls and humbly, gratefully receive it. And it's such a delicate and soft, graceful thing in the early beauty morning, just as sun is rising, birds are singing. So I was in this really peaceful state, you know, I enjoyed these pindapot walks, and I noticed a huge log across the path that wasn't there the night before, and there were no big trees that big, and no storm or winds. I just saw the log, and you know, I said, how'd the log get there? So I was a little stirred with curiosity. And then as I got walked closer, I saw it undulating. And then I was a little stirred with apprehension <laughs> as the thought came up, python, which, you know, are abundant in Southeast, A- Southeast Asia. And I kept walking, you know, it was still about from here to the end of the Dhamma Hall. And it kept undulating, you know, which I thought meant it was crossing, crossing the path. Um, but I thought, gee, it's, it must be really, really big. Because, you know, a couple of minutes went by and it's still undulating, you know, trying to cross the path. So naturally I began to slow down. <laughs> and um, get, But my curiosity got the better of me a little bit like the quail, you know, <laughs> stepping out of my ancestral home. I got closer and, and then more curious, and I thought, well, maybe it's molding, you know, shedding its skin or something. But it was quite big, quite thick, you know, 10 centimeters. And, and um, you know, so a little fear, but more curiosity. And I got closer and I got closer. And then I saw that it was just a large column of marching ants. You know, and it was my hope. My suddenly, I saw reality. <laughs> you know, it's, it's what happens in our practice. We perceive something that's solid. We perceive next something that seems to be somewhat changing, but we're still identified with it, still misperceiving it as a something. But then, an opening happens, a glimpse, and we see as it is. This the momentariness of all nature, all phenomena, all dhammas, this, this velocity with which thoughts arise and pass, the, the, the very swiftness of that velocity gives it the illusion of being unbroken. And therefore that's how we get pulled into a story. And likewise with emotions, which often arise in clusters, the very density in how one emotion colors another and pulls up another. And then, you know, whenever we identify, there's uh, there's doubt there. So emotions are often cloudy. We don't see very clearly. But if we're patient enough, and as Upandita suggested, just try and see one emotion. You know, so first I just saw whatever it was, fear or grief or anger. And then the whole cluster untangled. And I just saw that all emotions are momentary. Very quick, but momentary. And again, emotions like thoughts so quick that we, we just think there's a solid wall of grief or sorrow or anger. Uh, and that, and how can we possibly get rid of this big solidified, dense phenomena? Well, we wake up. Just resting in the moment 
just relaxing and trying to see see the component parts. There's the thought story level. There's the mental mood and emotion or emotional cluster level. There's the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling level of reality. There's the sensation, bodily sense corresponding to the emotion or cluster of emotions or even thoughts. When we're really quiet, we see that every single thought leaves a physical footprint. Every neuronal impulse, energy impulse that we call thought has a physical sensation. And it's not our purpose, nor our intention, nor our need for um, understanding and liberation to see on that level. I'm just saying it's possible every once in a while. More often than not, you might see a thought like this. It's like a bubble starting to surface from from the bottom of the ocean. And we see our mind intention, the intention of the mind bending toward that thought to take it as an object of awareness. But we're so still, we're in such a place of seclusion, bodily seclusion, meaning the mind, the senses aren't being pulled out, and mental seclusion, the other meaning of seclusion, where the mind isn't burdened by hindrances, you know, aversion, desire, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety, doubt. Every once in a while, there's just that that's, that place of quiet, a place of we wake up, and we just see very clearly, as it is, what's happening. It's that pure emotion. And the, then the tendency to go back into thought, not hold on, then it's just the pure emotion, or the feeling tone, or the body sense. Same with the Brahma Viharas, you know. They they might trigger something, uh, you know, another hurt locker, some way in which we were hurt by some form of conditional love, intrusive, manipulative, angry, you know, the opposite, resentful. But there, again, we just rest, go back into that, we wake up, seclusion from the bodily distractions, and the, the peace, the stillness of mind. So we can just see the as-it-is nature, things arising and passing according to nature, things as they really are. One last, as I conclude the talk tonight, and then we'll talk more about equanimity tomorrow. It's, a, it's really important, but it's been really good that we've we've come at it with a, sort of a, like a sidelong glance, rather than trying to look directly at equanimity. We've been experiencing it. It's been here all along. It's been guiding us all along. It's been developing each and every Brahma-vihara has been balancing all those moments where we've had glimpses, where we've had that receptive awareness and so forth. So we'll describe it more tomorrow. But a little bit more on karmic knots and viveka, or, you know, or hurt lockers and viveka, that um, we all have them. And some are big and dark and foreboding, uh, some are lifelong teachings for us, and that's the right way to see them. Um, and, and some aren't, aren't so big. And the little karmic knots, in every retreat, uh, we heal some of those little karmic knots and gives us confidence and trust in the practice. Um, it's still the same process of being, our, our feeling that our only task is being in the present moment and feeling those degrees of of deepening stillness, seclusion. So, so, so seclusion is a, is 
called the first kind of non-sensual dhamma, pleasure or joy. And concentration, the unification, the perfectly put together mind, is, is the second deeper kind of dhamma, pleasure and joy. Um, um, happiness based on um, uh, deep stillness itself, deep stillness protecting the mind even more from distraction. And the third kind of uh, dhamma, happiness or pleasure, is contentment. It's when, it's when we, all, we all have, by this time, felt moments of very deep bodily, mental ease and comfort. The, the Pali word is sukha. So the happiness of contentment. And the fourth, which we will talk more about tomorrow night, is the happiness of, of equanimity. Uh, that balance of mind, no matter what's happening, how pleasant are unpleasant, how alluring or intimidating. So the karmic knot in these weweka states, these places of stillness and rest and relaxation, allow us to, to learn how to work with them in what Michelle and I call um, manageable segments or little doses. If you, most of you probably know of homeopathy, we, we take a little dose a very small essence of the of the pain or disease or hurt. Like if you're stung by a bee, there's a homeopathic dose that's a little bit of the bee sting. And then that's supposed what that does is is uh, is uh, stabilize and strengthen our our system, our own immunity to heal. So it's the same thing with these karmic knots. We just take them in manageable segments, our, our homeopathic doses. If we just feel a little bit of them, it's enough. And the way we just feel a little bit of them, not be overwhelmed, is by not trying to work on them, not having, not making them a project, not having them, not identifying with them as something we have to do to get rid of, to be free. They actually become our greatest teacher. We actually begin to see that you know every time we bump up against them, uh, we, we strengthen all the practice qualities, all the Brahma Viharas. We deepen our faith and trust, our courage, our courageous energy, and uh, deepen the stillness and these deeper and deeper kinds of viveka or happy kinds of happiness I just named. Um, so if we just feel. A, a segment, a manageable segment, or just a little bit of dose, and, and, and truly feel it. Remember I said it's really rare? Once out of a hundred moments of, of a, being with a feeling, may we actually purely feel the feeling without that mental proliferation that fabricates and makes a story out of it. You know, thoughts um, distance us from feeling emotions. They buffer the pure knowing, the pure ability for metta or mindfulness to be with the feeling. And that's, that's, that's the only time that feeling is healing. Metta feeling, our pure pre-verbal awareness feeling is healing. So it's, it's getting a sense of, as we've been saying, exploration, backing off, and getting a sense of our limits and capabilities differ from day to day, from practice session to practice session. So when we don't have the energy or, or don't feel the, the ability, the willingness, the courage, you know, we don't have that presence of mind, that's the time to rest, you know, to back off, to leave it alone. When we do feel it, it's almost always effortless. That little bit of that that manageable segment of that hurt locker pain, that karmic knot will surface and we'll have what it takes to feel for as long as we can, a few minutes, sometimes a whole part of the sitting or walking, to feel that pain without identifying, without roiling into a story, just the pure pain, the pure feeling nature of it.
when my when my mom was dying about five years ago, Michelle called me from um, one of my refuges of Golden Buddha Island in the Andaman Sea off the southern coast of Thailand. And um, I made it back uh, in time to, to spend 36 hours. And many people gathered, you know, our daughter and and uh, many friends, many of our Michelle's and my friends were very close to my mom. And uh, so there were eight or ten of us, sometimes more, especially the last two and a half hours. Uh, and uh, we were in her room. And there was some concern at different times that she was experiencing a lot of pain and the suggestion or thought, you know, to give her some morphine to ease the pain. She couldn't talk at that time. And she had long, you know, lost the ability to be very mobile. But her eyes were open and clear and uh, unquestionably connecting. And, and she reached out her hands for mine. And for two and a half hours, you know, we held hands and kept eye contact. So I, I, I heard all the conversation going on and, you know, I myself had moments of doubt whether she should have this morphine. And uh, Michelle called uh, our friend and student and my mom's doctor, who immediately said, no, you know, don't give her any morphine. I know your mom well. And, and luckily, you know, the doctor was a deep practitioner. I know your mom wants to die awake, alert. She doesn't mind the pain. She'd rather feel the pain and die awake. That's just who your mom is. And that's just the conditions of this moment. You know, might be different with each of us or our parents at different times. But at this moment, that was her instruction. And, and it felt really right. And so those last two and a half hours are like this profound meditative, you know, eye to eye, hand to hand, moment to moment, just being with what is, just being with the truth of, of changing phenomena, all phenomena being impermanent, all phenomena being anicca, impermanent, and all phenomena, all dhammas being anatta, you know, empty of any intrinsic abiding self. There's no one to die. You know, and that was this so it was like this extraordinary birth. It was a, it was a birth. It was a death and birth at the same time. And that's how. That's how I feel about all of us, you know. The, and translate that into our practice is, as much as we can, be awake no matter what's happening. You know, how difficult that karmic knot is at times. It's not to mean to struggle and strive. It means to take rest when we need to rest, to find that we wake and back off. It just means, as Upandita instructed, our only task is to be in the present moment. So if we have to change our posture or change our focus or change um, whatever we're doing, fine, just stay present. Stay awake to the moment because it's so precious. Every moment is so precious. It's so rare to have this opportunity to do what we do. Let's sit together a moment. We all be awake until full realization.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.